morning. How's everybody doing? It is so good to be back with you. I was here a year ago this same weekend. How many of you were here last time? I was here. Okay, good, great. It's great to see you all again. When I was talking to Jonathan about coming here again, I got excited because usually you get invited back to a place for one of two reasons. The first reason is that it went well. Like you guys told him we had a good time, and he's like, hey, we should bring that guy back in. The other reason is that it didn't go well. And you guys were like, we hated that guy. And Jonathan's like, I want to make you miss me. All right, so, so however this ended up happening again, I'm really, really glad to be with you. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is uh, you've been in a series about inclusion. And Jonathan asked me to talk today about the women specifically in Paul's letters uh, in the work of Paul. And we began with this break, uh, icebreaker question, but we're going to put on the screen. There's this book written in the early 2000, well, 2006, 7 by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Cross. Anybody know those guys? They're like brilliant Jesus scholars. They wrote a book on Paul called The First Paul. And the question they pose in the book, is Paul an appealing or an appalling apostle? Which is sort of a tongue twister, right? Uh, but is Paul appealing or appalling? Is Paul good or bad? Is Paul positive or negative? So just based on the discussion earlier, how many of you would say that you have a positive view of Paul? Who, who wrote a, a good chunk of the New Testament, okay? How many of you would say that you have a negative view of Paul? How many of you are, don't even know who Paul is? How many of you are indifferent? Okay, so we got some indifferent folk. We got some people who like Paul, some people who don't like Paul. I want to begin today, and we're not going to look at this text. I just want to summarize this text. He writes a letter to a church in Rome, and it's called Romans, and it's in the New Testament. And the point of Romans, it's often seen to be sort of this systematic theology where Paul's telling everybody what he thinks completely. And that's just not right. What actually is going on in Romans is there was a church that had become largely Gentile. And by Gentile, we mean non-Jewish. So they had different customs, different practices. If you go to a Gentile potluck, there's going to be pork, there's going to be bacon, there's going to be all that. If you go to a Jewish potluck, that's not so much, right? So there's these two communities with different values, in a way, with different eating rituals. Um, and so the Jewish people had been expelled from Rome in the late 40s. And during the period of time they were gone, these Gentile Christians populated the church at Rome, and it completely changed. Well, when the Jewish members of the community came back, suddenly there's a tension. Like, how do we get these two groups of people at the same table? How do we bridge the gap between them? And Romans is a letter where Paul is essentially saying, we need to bring these two sides together because the, the body of Jesus isn't divided. The body of Jesus is meant to be one whole Body. And so Romans is this letter, and, and Paul has never been before. He's never gone there. And so he's writing a letter ahead of time to sort of say, this is who I am, I'm coming to visit you. And at the end of the letter, he wants to give some credit to some people. He wants to raise sort of the profile and say, these are people who are doing really, really good work. And so if we turn to Romans 16 and we see the list, Paul lists a group of people, and he actually populates the list with a bunch of women. He first introduces a woman named Phoebe, who he called a deacon in the church. Phoebe went on to have a great music career and she wrote a song called Smelly Cat. I don't know if you've heard it, but she did it. Um, Prisca, also known as Priscilla, he says this about her. She risked her life for the good news of Jesus. Then there's Mary, who worked hard, he said. There's Junia. He says Junia uh, was prominent among the apostles. Now here's the interesting thing about Junia. Junia, in some translations of the Bible, is a feminine name. 
because there was speculation, what does it mean to be prominent among the apostles? Does it mean she was an apostle who was prominent? Or does it mean that she was well known to the apostles? And there are really thick books where people debate this. But the point is, what some early translators did is they just changed her name to a masculine name. Because they came in with the bias that we can't have a woman as an apostle. And yet right here on the list, Paul recognizes this woman, Junia, as either being an apostle who was prominent or being well-known, which means that her work was respected and valued, her leadership mattered. And then there's Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, he says about them that they worked hard. There's Persis, who also worked hard. There's Rufus's mom, and who doesn't love Rufus's mom? Uh, Rufus's mom, actually Paul says that she was a mother to me as well. Then we hear about Julia, and then we hear about Nereus and his sister, and then we hear about a woman named Olympus. This is how Paul ends the letter. And all told, next slide, all told, in this sort of closing mention, there are 29 people mentioned, 27 are mentioned by name, and a third of them are women, and most of the women are in roles of leadership. Now, I begin with this because Paul gets a bad rap. And if you read some of his writings, some of it seems well-deserved. I mean, you can read Paul, and you can find him to be anti-LGBTQ, you can find Paul to be pro-segregation slavery, right? You can find Paul to be anti-woman, pro-patriarchy. How many of you have ever read something of Paul that fits in one of those categories? Or something purported to be from Paul? And, and yet, when Paul's writing these letters, he says, these women, essentially, we couldn't do what we do without these women. They've worked hard. They've provided leadership. They've been in the thick of it with us. Now, there's something about the Bible that people try to do, and we, we, try to, we read a verse somewhere, and we read a bunch of verses, and here's the thing you can do. Did you, did you realize this? You can make anything up out of the Bible that you want to make up. If you hop, skip, and jump enough, you can validate pretty much anything. So if you want to be anti-whatever, you can probably piece together enough, like, a, like an old patch-made quilt, you can piece together enough bits of passages here and there. But then there are these arcs. What I mean by arcs are, there are these texts that seem to be saying things are going somewhere, right? That instead of seeing the Bible as being, and this is how I saw the Bible growing up in, I grew up in eastern Kentucky on the West Virginia border, like two hours of daylight a day, like that sort of where I'm from. And we just assumed that the Bible had fallen out of the sky, written in King James English, because that's what we believe God spoke in. I'm not even joking. Till I was probably 15, I didn't know that Jesus didn't speak like that. I thought Jesus was speaking King James English, had the gilded gold edges, and it had your name on the front, right? Anybody ever have one of those Bibles with your name on the front? Because Bible theft is a problem, especially in the South. People be stealing Bibles all over the place. Um, and we had this assumption that the Bible was this thing that fell out of the sky, and it's full and complete, and it says everything you need to know about everything. And then you read something about quantum physics. You're like, I'm pretty sure that's not in there, right? And so instead of seeing the Bible as this thing that dropped out of the sky to tell us every move to make, what if we began to see the Bible as what it's trying to do is it's trying to put us in a direction. I mean, how many of you are parents? At some point, all you can do with your kids is to point them in a direction, in an arc, to teach them this is the way, and then they get to choose what they do with it, right? And I think the arc from Paul, while you can say maybe he didn't write some of the letters that he said that says something, like whatever, 
But the point from Paul, I think, that he gives us sort of a trajectory. And that trajectory is found in Galatians chapter 3. I want to show you this verse, these couple of verses from Galatians 3. Galatians is the second letter most likely Paul wrote. The first Thessalonians came first. Uh, and then he likely wrote Galatians in the early 50s. Uh, not 1950s, 1850s, like 50s, nothing before it. And here's what he says. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now get this next part. He's talking, you're all part of Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says, in this new family that's being made, all the ways we've divided ourselves up are null and void. Whether that's socioeconomic, whether that's gender, whether that's, whether that's how, how you um, grew up, which would be this whole Jewish and Greek thing. Uh, in all these ways, all of those things are null and void because Jesus is tearing down the walls. He's tearing down the boundaries. There's this great line in Ephesians that says that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Right, Paul says, in Christ, a new kind of community is being formed, a kind of community. And all of these things tend to be very, very, uh, for Paul, very social. Men and women wouldn't eat at the same table. They wouldn't even be in the same room very much unless the women were serving the men. Right? Slaves and free people would never eat at the same table together. Right? And yet, Paul says, in this Jesus experience, we're finding that all the ways we've carved up the world, all the power plays, all the, this group dominates this group, all of that stuff is actually from the past. And we're finding that in Jesus, a new kind of community, a community of equality, of equity, of justice, an egalitarian community where everybody has a voice. Like That's the sort of thing that is being born out of this Jesus movement. There's a writer named Thomas Cahill. He wrote a book called Desire of the Everlasting Hills, which is about the early Christian community. It's brilliant. And here's what he says about this text. The cosmic Christ whose glory knocked Paul from his horse on the road to Damascus, which is a reference to when Paul sort of has a Jesus experience. He was riding a horse to Damascus, and he has this vision of a blinding light. Whose sum, uh, the cosmic Christ whose glory knocked Paul off his horse on the road to Damascus, who sums up in himself the whole of the created universe, eventually leads Paul to thoughts that no one had ever had before. Thoughts about the equality of all human beings before God. Next. In this ancient world of masters and slaves, conquerors and conquered, a world that articulates at every turn precisely and publicly who's on top, who's on bottom, Paul writes the unthinkable. In Christ Jesus, in the ultimate cosmic reality, there can be no power relationships. The primitive church was the world's first egalitarian society. Here's what he's arguing. Nobody in human history had ever argued for equality like Paul is arguing for equality. In fact, the ancient world couldn't fathom it, which is why I think in some of the other Christian letters, you see people saying things that are like, well, this is, this is a lot really fast. Like, we can't even process this. Because Paul is making claims about how every single human being is equal in this family. For Paul, Jesus is the boundary breaker. Jesus is the one who brings people to the table who shouldn't be at the table. And I remember growing up hearing this verse preached. And yet, it never worked out in our experience. So I want to tell you a little bit about my own journey. Uh, and then I want to come back to this verse, uh, and we'll see where we go. So I grew up, like I said, in the 
Eastern Kentucky, West Virginia area. My grandfather was a free will Baptist pastor. Anybody know any free will Baptist? Anybody know about free will Baptist? So there's all sorts of different kinds of free will Baptist. I was the kind of free will Baptist where you didn't know, when you showed up to church, you didn't know who was preaching because they would just call on you. Like if you were a preacher, and you could usually tell that because you sat on the front in a big pew and, you know, you wore white tube socks that you could see under your suit pants. Like that's how you knew. Official, you know, some people wear collars, we wore white tube socks. Um, and, you, you know, you, you would sort of just like, hey, so-and-so is going to preach today. And they would get up and preach. And the one thing that was always true is women never, ever had the microphone to speak. Uh, they were allowed to teach our kids. They were allowed to plan and execute potlucks. They were, allowed to do, they were allowed to do every difficult thing that nobody really wanted to do. And yet they were never allowed to give their opinion on an issue. One would never be allowed to say at a business meeting, here's what I think, because she should filter that through her husband. And if she wasn't married, then she was just out of luck. All right, that's the context I grew up in. And yet, my home life was very different. I come from a family of very strong women with strong opinions. And so I would hear this business about women, about men being the head of the household, and then I would go to my house, and my dad did everything my mom said. And pretty, it still does. Like, he knows. He, he knows. He does what she says. And so there was this experience of church where women have sort of this servant role uh, but never with any authority over men, and then going home and it being like, wow, I don't understand this. My grandfather died. We, we decided to move to a liberal church. It was a Southern Baptist church um, because for us, that was liberal. <laughs> like you've crossed the line, and you're on the slippery slope officially uh, at the Southern Baptist church. And one of the interesting things they would do is they would have Baptist Women's Day. Has anybody ever gone to a church with Baptist Women's Day? And what would happen on Baptist Women's Day is women would get up and wait for it, share because you can't preach, because you're a woman. But you could get up and briefly share a bit of your story. And I thought, oh, that's great. The, 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 they have an op- these women have an opportunity to tell us who they are. They get to tell us where they're from and what their life has been about. And so that was our experience at the Southern Baptist Church, was once a year, women would get up and share. And they did all the things they did at the Free Will Baptist Church. They did the potlucks. They took care of the kids. They planned the vacation Bible school. They did all the things except have the opportunity to get up and say, I think the Bible means this. Right? That just wasn't really allowed. And then something happened. In the fall of 1999, I enrolled in college. And I had been told and I had been warned to be careful and not take any of those college religion courses because they would corrupt your mind and ruin your theology and they would send you on the path of the prodigal son. And they were 100% right. That is exactly what happened. I went into the class. It was a Hebrew Bible Old Testament class. I went into the class and sat down. And the teacher's name, the professor's name was Dr. Grizzard Browning. And so I'm waiting for Dr. Grizzard Browning to come in. Don't know anything. Don't know the first name. And in walks this woman who not only is about to teach me Hebrew Bible, she is a Presbyterian pastor. I immediately began to pray. She... She clearly hasn't been told that she is not qualified, not based on any education or skill, but just because she's a woman. She's not qualified to teach me the Bible. And then she started to. And you have to understand, we were it was a bunch of little evangelical snots in the class, right? That's what we, and we were all there to convert her. And she, I don't know if she converted anybody else, but she converted me. She taught me about the Bible. She taught me where the Bible came from. She taught me about these texts. 
that I'd le learned to read at face value and just assume they'd fallen out of the sky. And she taught me about context and she taught me about meaning. And in so many ways, the death of my grandfather started my unraveling. But sitting in that class with Dr. Browning was the thing that sent it into full speed. She calls me to ask questions. Everything I was told would happen to me taking a college religion course happened. And I couldn't be more grateful for it. And then I eventually became a pastor. Um, I, I came to Morgantown in the year 2005. It's also when I met my wife. And I started as the interim pastor at Morgantown Community Church. And then I just hung around. We would say in the South, like a hair in a biscuit. Like I just wouldn't leave. And they gave me the job and I became the pastor there. And in my sermons, I would talk about things like the equality of men and women in community. And then I finally asked somebody, why do we never nominate women to be our, one of our elders? And somebody said, oh, it's because we have a policy against that. It's like, this would have been helpful information for me when I was up preaching the exact opposite. Like, maybe I should have known that we had a policy. And so we decided, I sat down with our elders, this entire male group of elders. And I said, I think that our church is not what it could be because we only have men leading it. And when you only have men leading it, we're missing out on part of the image of God that really matters. Uh, I said, I think, we need, I think we need to do something. I think we need to open up our leadership uh, and, and have it based on people who feel equipped and ready and are called by the church, not, not people who have a particular gender. And to my surprise, to a person, this entire male group of elders said, we're with you. Let's do it. So we did a series of sermons where we talked about the Bible and we looked at all the scriptures in depth and in detail from Paul. And we talked about the history. We talked about the big arc, right, where when Paul in Galatians says that there is neither male, like he's giving us an arc. This is where it's headed. It's headed toward equality. And the church has been, you know, fumbly and bumbly with it over the years. And we haven't always done it well. And we haven't always lived up to sort of the arc that history is headed in. But this is where it's headed. And we want to be a part of history. We want to be a part of the right side of history. And the right side of history is to say we have women who are called and empowered. And we need to empower them to do what they've been gifted to do. And when we had, we had to do a vote to repeal this old church doc, doctrine, law, position, or whatever. And we voted 96% in favor of opening up leadership to women in our church. And we lost a solid five to six families over it. And people just left. One of the strongest, staunchest uh, people against it was a woman. Like she just had begun to believe that her role was not to lead. And in our church, the, the very, we, we do elders in December. We nominate new elders. And we, had, we brought on three women, and we had three men. That just happened. We didn't have a, like a ratio. It just worked that way. And I had people, women in, in our church, who came to me and said, you know, I just went over there and talked to, the, to my elder, and she was fantastic. And by the way, I would never have talked to a man. I, I wouldn't have felt as safe talking to him. I talked to her, and it was helpful, and I really, really, really appreciate it. And I've seen women in our church who have just flourished in this role of leadership, who have stepped into that, and it was like it was tailor-made for them. And I just looked back and thought, my goodness, as a 19-year-old kid in eastern Kentucky going into that very first college class when that powerful, prophetic, because she was, I mean, she is something, teacher, professor, walks in the room and starts teaching the Bible, something in me was like, I've missed this my entire life. There's been perspective, and there's been a presence that just has been absent. 
Man, I'm so thrilled today that my dear friend Melissa Green, Melissa's been here before, right? I think Melissa's been here before. She's preaching for me today, and our church likes her better than they like me. Like, it's a very risky sort of situation to, to do. The first time I had her preach, one of the, one of the guys was like, could you just, can we trade you for her? Like, what is that? Is there like a, I know, in, I know in sports you can trade. Is this a thing we can do? We can trade. And this idea has opened up our church in exponential ways. Not necessarily, I mean, to be clear, we've lost a lot of people because of some of the decisions we've made about the ark, about who's included. And I know y'all at Forefront have been through that too, haven't you? Who's welcome at the table? Let's go back to this verse from Paul. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the ark. That's the direction. I think if we could sit down and have a conversation with Paul and ask him about all the things. Like, like, just to be honest, Paul could not fathom our world. Paul fathomed his world and his context. And he did the best. Actually, in the conversation about Paul earlier, somebody said, I think he did the best he could in his time. All right, in a world where women are seen as property to make a declaration that men and women are equal, it isn't just sort of a tiptoe forward. It is a massive leap. And yet Paul's work isn't done, is it? If we simply say, well, Paul had it all figured out, well, Paul doesn't even mention our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, right? But my gosh, right here, there's an ark, isn't there? Paul is, he's creating an ever-expanding table. And I think our calling today is not so much to read what Paul said and do exactly what Paul did. Because in some ways, we could do exactly what Paul did, and we could be working against the Spirit of God in our own time. We find the ark. We see where it's headed. And we step in with courage and with conviction that God's table is ever-expanding, and we want to invite as many people to that table as want to come. And the only prerequisite is that you might be a bit hungry and a bit thirsty because there's more than enough to share. Are you with me? You know, it, what's, what's really amazing is this good news of Jesus, which is, I, I think for people who aren't Christian or aren't, aren't Christian on this ever-expanding journey, maybe, people look at Christians and they just think, ugh. It's like, that's the best reaction I can give you. Sometimes I'm on an airplane and somebody's like, what do you do for a living? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> because I, I might work for the CIA. I don't know. Right? But Because you know what happens when you're a pastor, when you're a religious professional, and you tell people that, is the conversation immediately changes. And suddenly they're a saint. And then suddenly they're, well, you know, I, I, I love Jesus, but I cuss it. Like whatever people say. Right? And it changes the game. People have, I was at a U2 concert in Louisville working for the One Campaign, and we were out canvassing, asking people to write our senators, saying essentially, please don't kill people. Uh, and some people were like, no, I'm too busy. What? Anyway, we meet with this woman and her family. I'm meeting them, and I'm, she's like, oh, what do you do outside? Like, what do you do for a living? I was like, I'm a pastor. And she looked at me, she said, oh, you're all the problem, aren't you? It's like, yeah, we are the problem, aren't we? Us religious types who increasingly try to say who's in and who's out. This religious type who, only people who are really pure, and like, those people don't exist. And I said, but some of us are really trying hard to make it better. And perhaps our calling 
in this time and space, when Christianity has become so ugh to so many people, perhaps our calling is simply to do the next right thing and to take the next right step, whatever that looks like, into this arc that is headed toward justice and equity and equality. And if we do that, we will not leave this world having solved all the problems. But we will give our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids a better world, and we'll show them, I can't tell you everything you need to do in life, but I can tell you this is the trajectory. And if you move toward love, and if you move toward inclusion, and if you move toward making more and more space for people, then the world's going to be better. And I'm so grateful for Forefront, because that's what you all as a community have done. You've chosen to enter into the hard work of being more expansive, of removing boundaries and creating a place that is inclusive and welcoming and affirming and gracious and beautiful. And I know that sometimes people think pastors are doing this work. The only way we can do this work is if we have a community with us who are pushing us and sometimes pulling us forward with them. Um, But you, in this city, you are doing needed and beautiful work. And some days it can be a struggle and some days it can be wearying. But I just want to encourage you to keep going and keep making more and more space at the table. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for this community, this light in the world. It's inviting all people to the table. And I know I'm grateful specifically this morning for the women who have shaped my faith, for the women who have, and just by their presence, doing what they've been called and gifted to do or calling me into a better version of myself. So God, may we always be aware that when the table is set, there's an empty chair for somebody else who has something to say. And we're grateful for Paul, who didn't have it all figured out. But he left us a trajectory. It's the trajectory of Jesus. So we open our hearts. We open our minds. We open our eyes. We open our hands. Ready to join you in the work of welcoming. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.